This is Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I'm your host, Julian Guderlei, and I'm here today with Helena from Spirals Protocol. Welcome, Helena. Thanks for having me, Julian. Oops. Yeah, it's exciting to be on the conversation, all things refi, all things uh, systemic change. Um, you just created another company, sold that company, and uh, now you're building Spirals as a um, really like a, a way to make the blockchain a reality and take it out of the vision field no yeah that's that's the plan i was running uh the old startup for two and a half years or so uh and ended up selling that in february and spent several months just diving into kind of the intersection of economics and climate really looking at you know how do you make the biggest lovers at a systems level rather than putting the onus kind of on the individual um what i mean by that is you know right now as a consumer you have to go to go out of your way um, to do the right thing. I'm vegan and that's not like the easiest lifestyle to have. Um, and it's not as cheap as, you know, eating like highly processed foods or other like, you know, having non-plant-based diets. So um, how do we kind of redesign a system so that doing the financially um, cheaper or more preferable thing is also kind of climate aligned in that way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a huge topic. Uh, we were just joking that, you know, we could stop, you know, using all the straws we we wanted, we we were using the last twenty years, but it mm -hmm. would still not really move the needle, right? Mm -hmm. um, plastic straws being an example of of things we were really made aware of in the last few years. Yeah. But really, there's there's such a a bigger mess underneath all that that um, if it doesn't change, like we'll just continue to be this exploitative species on the planet, right? As our, all of our economic incentives allow mm -hmm. not just individuals but mainly like industries to to just treat the natural world as if it wasn't accounted for in the spreadsheet which i mean it isn't really accounted for in the spreadsheet in most mm -hmm. cases how do you see that changing and and why do you think other than that we needed to change why do you think it's actually going to change i think it has to if it doesn't we're all screwed so i'm gonna optimistically believe that <laughs> it, it'll have to change uh and i think there's a lot of kind of movement into that space already like we're seeing signals of that change happening right now um more so in you know regulated parts of the world, especially in Europe, where we have like cap and trade and stuff like that. Um, but in the US, it's been incredible to watch um, like a non-regulated, entirely voluntary market move into making that shift. And this is mostly in like the carbon accounting space, um, where companies are realizing that hey, they they offset a certain amount, or they sorry they emitted a certain amount, and now they're trying to offset the bad and. The unit for a lot of this market is, is it's like a carbon ton, um, and and that's been interesting. Um, but in terms of why this is happening, it's it's driven by consumer demand. So people are pressuring these organizations to like do the right thing by the planet, uh, and it's it's kind of incredible that like that's all happening in the voluntary market and policy is just too too slow right now. Mm. And the old excuse is that like, well, that's just the way that, you know, money creates our reality or they're just not mm -hmm. good enough anymore. It feels like for a whole generation, no, there's like, we, we're realizing, just as you said, we would literally be screwed. We're killing the biosphere. And so we are at the biosphere, really, mm -hmm. an extension of it. So it, it's a must. Like, I mean, we've been exploring this on Green Planet, Blue Planet for a few years now. And it's, it's really beautiful to see that there is a, like an increase of people that are like deeply feeling that understanding it and then because of that an influx of people that are using economic and sometimes also technological um, tools to to really 
change things and like move the needles. So tell us a little bit about spirals and like what you're actually in the process of building and um, how it's going to really allow a regenerative um, marketplace or a regenerative way of of operating to come to become true. Yeah. So I guess the first thing is I think defining what is regenerative. Um, so you know right now we're in a system that's extractive. You used the word exploitative before, which I think is like a great description of it. You know we're taking natural resources. They're not properly priced into the system and shoving them to the sides as we like strip out all the value and return it to shareholders. In a regenerative system, like all of the things on the side are embedded into the cost of the system. Um, and that allows us to like truly price things. Um, what we're building is kind of at the rails of this economy such that pieces are, are priced in. And the pricing the pieces in means we have to somehow figure out what their value is, which is hard to say, right? You have to figure out how do you attribute some kind of value to a natural resource, which feels kind of wrong-ish if you're like a nature lover. You're like, how much value do I put behind like protecting this land because it's sacred? Um, but in order to fit that into like our, our economy, that kind of has to happen, which is interesting. Um, so that's a whole other debate we can have down the line if we want to. But um, so the idea is how do we like tokenize the true externalities of our system and embed them into the core infrastructure of our economy. And I think um, the world I'm in right now, um, I kind of view a lot of the economic activity moving on blockchain. Uh, and, and if the future economy is built on chain, we want the rails of this new economy to be regenerative by default, by design. So we want to build these systems into the infrastructure of a blockchain. And a blockchain is made up of a bunch of different computer nodes. Um, these computer nodes exist in order to make money. They're like money machines. Um, they sign blocks and they get block rewards. What we do is we take those block rewards and we spend them on climate projects. Uh, that's unique from all the other machines that operate for profit. Um, so we take block rewards, which is like in the currency of the network, which it's like Celo or Solana or ETH, um, buy up tokenized carbon credits and then put those in our treasury. Uh, and that means that as the network is used, some of the gas fees, some of the inflation, all of that's directly going and doing good. And the end person, you know, who's who's sending a token from one wallet to another doesn't have to do anything differently. Uh, they could just kind of use the product as they normally would. Beautiful. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in with you know a, a to the kind of cut to the chase question. <laughs> so that's all fair and good, right? And I, I, I follow the logic and I think it's, it's really part of the future is to create these, these rewards that bring flow back into natural, um, you know, well, pl natural places that need us to include them into the systems. But like, let's be really real here. The, the, the governments and the economic power players that are currently run um, both the, the federal uh, money reserve as well as the IMF is, they, they might not have that same interest because like currently that exploitative um, way of it, running an economy really serves people no um not everyone and not the natural world but but so how how does how do you see kind of that missing link um of you know changing our financial system changing our economic system into a better system how do you see that missing link connect where some of the power players of the current world are just like voluntarily benevolently on board voluntarily benevolently on board um for, for those existing players, like they have a lot at risk, right? Like for them to do some good for the world, like it ends up 
not being in their like economical and their business favor. So the people exactly. that I think are gonna um, take risks like this are our newer players. Um, they're startups, and for the same reason that you're not seeing like large companies all take like the crypto pill and switching over to blockchain because they have a lot to risk if they were to like DAOify their company um, because they're winning in the old way. Uh, I think the bet here is that the systems will all move on chain uh, and we don't need the old players. And that is one possibility. The other possibility is that we end up having policy that kind of forces them to go a certain direction. And I think that that policy will come. And then the second part, I think beyond policy is like players are recognizing that there is like actual significant economic impact on like not addressing the climate problem. Um, there was like a recent report by McKinsey that was describing like half of like global GDP being dependent on like natural resources. And like, that's terrifying. Uh, and like, if we don't address the problem, we literally can't continue. It will kind of stop uh, things. <laughs> and, and I think uh, people are starting to recognize that. Um, and there is like economic justification for kind of doing the right thing for the planet. Um, it's just about making sure that everybody kind of plays by the same rules. I love your optimism. I, I feel you and I hear you. I just, you know, in today's conversation, my role is to also ask some, you know, like um, devil's advocate kind of questions because I see I see this more beautiful world that I really truly believe uh, many of our hearts are connected to. And the vision of it is to include the natural world uh, into the way we, we do economy, right? Because like, quite frankly, like, as you said, the sacredness of a place currently has no value in our economic systems. And so we just exploit it rather than preserve it, protect mm -hmm. it, or allow it to regenerate by itself. But I just, um, I just really think the power of the people that you're describing there is the, the, the piece that really needs to move rather than just, you know, saying no mm -hmm. to using a plastic straw, really demanding systems that include the natural world. And so What's your your play and what's Spiral's kind of mission with with that to bring more people on board to make this like a kind of more like a movement than than just a business? I mean, I, I think you you nailed it, right? Like I think changes like this happen with a movement um and with with value change. So as more and more people care about the planet and protecting it, more and more people will seek alternatives. Uh and you know, we're seeing that trend with like with food, it's happening slowly. Like more and more people are going plant-based, more and more people are giving up meat or reducing the amount of meat consumption. And in a similar way, I think like people will, you know, seek brands that are doing the right thing um, and seek, you know, economic models that are doing the right thing. And as, you know, now with like the latest like crypto collapse, like I think it'll be harder to like get people on blockchain, <laughs> but I, I still believe that that will happen uh, and that people will kind of seek alternative solutions uh, to what is currently like an exploitative world. The concern is that the people who are most in need of alternative solutions are the ones with the least current power, right? So that kind of goes to your earlier point of like what incentivizes the people who are winning in the old system from migrating. And I think that is probably the hardest thing. Um, I think like one it. thing that like gives like a lot of hope uh, is that, you know, there's been all these interesting experiences are so like, we're very close. We work on the cello blockchain um, and they've done a lot in terms of like UBI and various like experiments around the world. And even just introducing a stable currency that's limited to like a microcosm or some, some community, suddenly they're able to operate and function and pull themselves out of poverty. And like that itself is kind of magical that we can uplift communities that weren't able to kind of 
progress just by giving everybody like like minting literally a new coin so that they have a way of doing trade right that's that's great and if we can do that and move that move mountains in that sense then there's like the the power of just many many numbers uh and it'll be kind of interesting to see how how that all plays out i don't think i answered your question though you were asking about <laughs> how do how do we fit into this well, I, I would just love to know a few more details about, about how Spiral is Spirals is really seeing these these steps. Because what I'm hearing you say is there is there is a vision, then there's a necessity and an incoming kind of timeline where this vision is most likely going to become a reality on the planet. I mean, the whole the whole world has been uh, you know wondering what are we going to do about you know ongoing pollution, and a lot of the world has been thinking about what are alternative models that that support decentralized solutions, right? But then, as we just said there is a current amount of power and amount of influence that, that are literally the people that are winning the current game that we call economy. And so it seems to me that there are still a few kind of bridges to connect before mm -hmm. things can really move. And part of you know why I'm broadcasting with Green Planet and Blue Planet is so that more people are in these conversations, right? And so I think it is something we're literally all creating together rather than we're waiting for someone to do it for us. So it's a very important piece to understand. We have active choice and agency in it. Um, and because of that, I'd love to understand, like, what is, other than the kind of, you know, um, systemic understanding that, that you just explained and Spirals has, like, a really beautiful setup, what is, let's maybe go to the values, like, what are the values that Spirals really wants to bring into this, um, this, this refi space? Mm -hmm. We want to create a way for people to vote directly on public goods. And, and that, you know, is a few steps away from what we're doing now in terms of climate. Um, but by working at like the core infrastructure layer and kind of managing essentially where the inflation of a network goes, uh, it's it's as if we're a government that gets to decide on uh, what to do with government like bonds, right? So in, in the regular economy right now, like let's look at the US, for example, you can put your money, you can buy US bonds. Um, you pretty much lock up your money for a few days or for a few months, few years, and you get returns on that. Um, the government is doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, like, you know, military spending or paying off their debts and stuff that you maybe don't align with. Uh, and in our system, we can design in a way where you get to vote directly on where those public goods are spent. And the, the climate use case is, is one, like, mini version of that. Um, we end up having a kind of board of scientific uh, a scientific committee uh, that everybody who's staking with our validator um, can can help elect, uh, and they get to vote on what climate projects we fund. Uh, and this is like is like a model for a new form of like decentralized governance, essentially. Uh, and if people, in a protected way, can vote directly on the public goods they want to support, now we're building a value-based economy where you get to vote on how your network is spending um, spending yield and and what what it's getting allocated. I think. Um, one of the most exciting things about building on the Rails of blockchain is that there's a lot of new like funding mechanisms and governance mechanisms. Everything from like you know quadratic voting and quadratic funding, if you're familiar with like the Gitcoin world. Well, you can you can help us uh, unpack it a little bit because I don't think mm -hmm. everyone is familiar with it. So this is very exciting, and that is the conversation I wanted to lead us more into because what we're seeing is that there is an old world that will possibly continuously hold against that change, mm -hmm. right? Because again, there is an, an investment of power that is currently real on the planet. And then there is the ingenuity of many, many 
tens of thousands of people like yourself that are actively looking how to replace the federal banks so that we can mm -hmm. create like value aligned um, economies, but also governance. And so I think it's going to happen. I believe in mm -hmm. it too. I'm super optimistic <laughs> about it, but, but the push and pull between the old world, mm -hmm. new world, I think is, is probably the most exciting threshold piece because no one knows how it's going to unfold. And likely we're building it rather than we're waiting for it. Meaning like we have to continuously run experiments. So please help us understand the space even better. Yeah, I, I think I think that's just it. Like it is this push and pull between the two worlds and it'll be like a slow progression and then eventually something will happen. Some kind of inflection point where maybe the majority of people have the majority of their personal wealth on chain, right? And that's when things really start moving. Um, and in terms of some of the things I like name dropped before, um, like what is quadratic funding? What is quadratic voting? Um, there, there are new ways of thinking about how like holding wealth should influence your, your, your power in a community. Um, quadratic funding, I think is a really interesting concept um, that we've now been kind of experimenting as we launched our own kind of grant on Gitcoin. And um, the, the gist of it, or the, the goal essentially of quadratic funding is to allow people who have less money to have more impact or more relative impact uh, than they would in a system that had a like one like dollar to one vote ratio. Uh, so quadratic comes from some kind of fancy math where you take like the square root or something like that. Um, but but the point is giving, let me compare it with like match pool. So, uh, or in our, in our case in particular. So. We have a grant up for like a climate project. There is a climate match pool of 500,000. Any project can, once they're accepted into this match pool, um, can get donations or grants to their project matched by this match pool. But a $1 donation is matched by like, let's say $100. And then a $100 donation is only matched by an additional $150. So you'll notice that the bigger the lump sum is, the less the matching like multiplier ends up being. Uh, and that means that, you know, even the little guys essentially have voting power. In a similar way, quadratic voting uh, is for making kind of governance decisions. Uh, and it protects people that maybe have, you know, less voting power uh, because it still allows them to voice themselves in a community. So in like another way of saying it, you know, the, the idea of quadrality or quadratic voting or, or um, economy in that sense, is a more contextual relational field than the straight up hierarchy of dollar power or lobby power would be, right? Which is the world we definitely live in right now. I mean, anyone who's done any form of research in how the United Nations spends their money and who are funders <laughs> and donors of that, I mean, it's a pretty big <laughs> headache actually. You know, there's, yeah. knowing many people personally, there's thousands of really well-meaning people that work in institutions that are possibly never going to really change the needle on any of these topics, even though they have really beautiful goals, right? It's, it's just that the system behind it doesn't allow for the more, you know, quadratic or like multidimensional contextual uh, axis. Mm -hmm. It's a, a clearly hierarchical axis. And so um, that's just going to cost more people, you know, more time and life, life energy um, than anything else. 100%. Yeah. And I think like the state 
that we're in right now is is super early for all these things. So like it's it's like we're all running like a massive experiment, and all the optimists in the world are trying to figure out what is a better way of governing. You know, it's it's really interesting and like kind of like a magical space to be building in, um, because a lot of people believe that there there exists like a, a better format, um, which may or may not be true. Um, I like to believe that there is. Uh, and what I think is exciting is that the pace of innovating on policy and governance is now at the same pace that we've seen with like other like software and tech, right? In the past, the only way that we've been iterating on governance is, I don't know, like every hundred or like 150 years, you know, we have some kind of like, you know, civil war and then we have a new government and like we try some new things. Um, but now we're doing this every month, right? Like some kind of like, DAO explodes, they try a thing. It's like, okay, that didn't work. Let's try the next thing. And we can finally iterate on policy and governance. And that's kind of wonderful. And there's an yeah. exciting, exciting element to it too, right? Where you can see some of the larger power players, governments and oligarchs alike, they mm -hmm. might be pushing against it, but some other smaller players in the old hierarchy, like let's say the country of Estonia or, mm -hmm. you know, other areas that are traditionally, you know, limited because of their resources and their access to playing the, the political, geopolitical money game, they might have an interest to support these projects. And so suddenly there is, it's just, a, it's like a mix of initiatives. And as you said, like optimists who believe in <laughs> our ability to change things i mean this is a very very fundamental piece to regeneration is you know if people when people ask me what i define regeneration it, it, it for me it's a principle of life it's a part mm -hmm. of how, how how the natural world moves and mm -hmm. so that usually brings me in my mind right away to all of the economic games we play we've invented them and mm -hmm. that 20 years ago few people would have wanted to have that conversation today it's like anyone under 30 is like yeah for sure we invented them so can we do better games you know, yeah, the let's, jump let's to build that a better understanding, game. that the jump to that understanding is quite simple and fast now. And as we've seen the internet explode and, you know, social media come in and now web, web three, three, zero, like kind of knocking on everyone's door. I do want to make sure we mention this. There's also a huge danger now, because if we continue to let people hierarchically demand who is a, a, a player or has the right social credit to be a player, then we also, in the worst case, could enter a time of like increased censorship and, um, yeah, just tyranny to the worst extreme. No, this is like the danger. I believe that's still out there, even with the the cryptos and blockchain solutions. If it's mm -hmm. in the hand of a few, it won't actually unfold the potential of being truly de decentralized. Is that true? Or yeah. How would you explain that? Yeah, I mean, I, totally. I think there's very much like a dystopian world where this doesn't play out in any of the way that its creators kind of hope for it to, to kind of turn turn into. Um, I think a lot of, uh, but what is interesting is that um, there are a lot of people thinking about that, right? Like a lot of people are aware that like, hey, this could turn into something very negative, very fast if we don't design this the right way. Uh, I think something we're seeing frequently is like um, looking at, you know, the launch of like a decentralized organization on chain, um, a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO, um, gives governance to all the members of it. And often they do an initial launch where, you know, the early adopters get like a bulk share. And then there's some kind of interesting scheme for new members to get some kind of share. Um, but it's very highly, like heavily biased towards the initial creators. Um, and does that create a system that attracts new people? Does that create other problems? Um, I think that's part of what, you know, we're trying to figure out right now and, and what's being iterated on. 
there is also a, a, a very important part here is no one of, no one of us knows. Mm-hmm. We just know that that is the direction of actually being able to change some of the fundamental ways of how we make sense of humanity's participation in this ecosystem right, or in the biosphere at large. And it, it will in one way or other happen, even in the dystopian way, mm-hmm. which you know, I, I think we're, we're, we're pretty set for a positive future because of all of the disastrous uh, contrast that we had to endure mm-hmm. and see in the last uh, decades, right? Like the more contrast we get, the clearer people wake up to understand, well, I don't really want that. And so mm-hmm. we're in that time right now. <laughs> and in that time, a lot of this is really possible. And you know, everyone tuning into this episode is gonna get inspired in their own way and then gonna take their own individual next step, which is part mm-hmm. of decentralization or you know, governing through DAOs, you know, is that like, we're not gonna sit around and wait till someone tells us what to do. It's like, we're all doing it. Yeah, everyone's like off to the races. I think one interesting thing I, I think about a lot is that um, all of this like, you know, internet native money uh, and blockchain currencies, like they were essentially like signaling our values, right? So they end up being value-backed currencies and, you know, maybe that value is like a tokenized natural asset. Um, and we're deciding, hey, protecting land has inherent value. Now we're gonna create like a natural asset-backed currency. Um, but we can do that with any other value. And that's great, but also terrifying, you know, because humans can't agree on values. And if we can't agree on values, we can't agree on like on which on what to trade, or we end up building the wrong value systems into our chain. Um, so who gets to decide what like what ends up getting like what what backs currencies? Uh there's this really interesting um book. Uh if you slash the audience hasn't read it. Uh, called sacred economics. The, this idea around if you, you know, back a currency by something, that something grows in inherent value or it grows in value and grows in demand. And, and that's a really exciting kind of concept itself. Uh, and something I think a lot about when we're in this like tokenized natural asset world, but the dystopian view of it is like, you know, someone might have values that clash with mine and um, what does one, one do with that? Uh, so it ends up just being very dependent on on people and people are very irrational um <laughs> at the core of it we have free will we, we're not to be controlled mm-hmm. just that we've built systems to control each other because it seems to be one of our shadowy expressions to continue to try to make sure we know what others do by the way in the meantime i looked up the chapter it's chapter nine uh, the story of value in sacred economics by charles eisenstein and um he was actually on the show a few years ago um Really, really interesting for anyone who's not read it yet to dive into sacred economics or uh, Charles' one of his many other books, um, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. Because this is the thing, right? There is this, this, this sentiment, this feeling, this emotionality where we, we kind of know it's all possible, mm-hmm. but it's only since we keep playing in an infrastructure in a society that already runs by specific rules that we keep defaulting to those rules. And so these islands of coherence or islands of sanity that that try different things, you know, like little groups that run a new DAO and, and test out if this went well or wrong, I think are essential. They're they're fundamental to figuring this out because no one knows the exact answer. We can just intuit the direction we're going in. Now, some mm-hmm. people might maybe rationalize or argue that then if you don't know where we're going, we shouldn't go there at all. But I, I think that's just, um you know, that's really counter to any of the deeper wisdom mm-hmm. that exists on our planet. It's like, this is a planet of uncertainty. We just pretend that, that we can control everything <laughs> and eat the resources until we, you know, until this point. But but really, it's a planet of uncertainty. 
yeah, we know nothing. <laughs> then the yeah, more yeah, experiments yeah. we can yeah. run, the better, right? I think the what what ends up winning is who can do things faster, who can learn faster, who can build faster, who can run ex like who can test theories faster um, within you know protected realms like the move fast and break things doesn't work if you're building in healthcare um but <laughs> i think within certain like realms of governance right now it's like you know go play and go test out new things mm -hmm. well without digressing into this particular rabbit hole but I, I do think the pharmaceutical industry breaks a lot of things while it's testing out that's true effectiveness. <laughs> but not to digress into that corner um you know there's lots of lots of ways <laughs> well that's problematic <laughs> but it's, it's a highly <laughs> problematic topic but helen yeah. i would love to ask about like some of your values and i want to ask about trust specifically because trust for me seems to be mm. one of those um really core values that allows us to move at a like faster speed because when trust is present things happen when trust isn't present usually nothing mm -hmm. happens and so trust is you know Brené Brown tried to um, map it out and it seems to be this like hyper complex understanding what is it to you what does trust uh, look and feel like to you hmm. I think I can speak to this on on many levels like one is like purely from the technical like the role of a validator is to kind of be trustless in the trustless system um, and then I can also speak to it as like you know leading a team um i think that one is more tangible and more interesting potentially um so to me like trusting people i work with means i like you know we go into the ether we do things and we come back and we're always excited to kind of hear what people have to say uh i'm not you know thinking about will other people do their work i'm just it's just kind of expected that they will uh and that's like a wonderful feeling um it's you know it gives you the sense of um I don't even know how to say it, just like calmness in that mm. everyone is kind of doing their part in moving the ship forward. Um, and you don't have to worry. It's like a lack of a lack of worry. And it just feels like a like a warm hug. <laughs> yes. Trust feels like a warm hug and it's a lack of worry. I think the lack of worry is an, a quite an interesting description. Like mm. anyone listening, if you take a deep breath and you just, you know, become a present or aware of all the things that you're potentially worried about. Imagine that not being there <laughs> mm -hmm. because you have friends, people, team members that got, you know, I mean, future governments, not the, the current ones maybe, but that are like <laughs> able to support you to say, no, you know what? Like everyone's moving and shaking um, towards a world that I think the indigenous wisdom would be a world of right relationship where mm -hmm. we understand the relationship we're in, right? We understand the, the cyclical um run of life like you know mm -hmm. if you exploit for 200 years there will be consequences you know yeah hmm. mm, thank you for that one what about you know you, you're also you know as you successfully launched a startup sold it had an exit you're up to, off to the next thing what about the role of discomfort and just like understanding that sometimes we are uncomfortable like how do you mm -hmm. personally um, use that or leverage that and like how does that occur to you mm -hmm. the role of discomfort and like yeah, I um, I love discomfort, uh, which might be an odd thing to say, uh, but I think discomfort is, to me, like the like the feeling you have when you're maybe well, you're uncomfortable by definition, but um, you're learning and you're growing, right? You're you're in a situation that you're unfamiliar with, uh, and you don't know how to act. When you work through that, you'll have now a new experience, and the next time you're in a situation like that 
you will be better and you'll be stronger. Uh, and uh, I think there's, you know, a lot of times I felt discomfort, uh, whether it's, you know, from like pushing yourself hard when you're like at the gym, like that means you're, you're growing in like, you know, a very right. physical way, but then also in like, you know, discomfort in having hard conversations. Um, and I think those hard conversations cut easier and easier over time. And those are extremely important to build things like trust. Um, I think that's like one of the, the things that, um, you know, early on working with my first co-founder um, that we wanted to work through. It's just like, how do we become the best communicators to build this level of trust where we can go and, you know, operate separately and just know that we can come together and do anything. Um, and through that, didn't really have discomfort there. Um, but yeah, I, I like to put myself in, in uncomfortable situations. Um, I think it's fun. It like makes you feel alive. It's like, oh, I wonder why this made me uncomfortable or why I'm feeling kind of icky now. Let me dive into that and, and introspect. Hmm. Wow, that is that's very real. And I like that you're saying this because um, we, we specifically talked about discomfort, right? We didn't talk about like pain or trauma. And so there's more and more studies coming out too that really back up how you're saying this, that like true dopamine release happens when we go through discomfort or pain first, like a, an ice bath, right? You go into the cold water, it's pretty tough. Your whole mm -hmm. system is, is pumping and you know, you're you're huffing and puffing your way through it, but then afterwards increased sustained dopamine because your body's like, oh wow, look, I can I can deal I with can it do because it. I'm resilient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think in a culture that you described earlier that we want to live different ways of sense making of monetary value exchange or you know mm -hmm. yeah government governance. We need this resilience. No? Yeah. There's a there's a book that comes to mind um called Anti-Fragile. Um mm -hmm. Also, I yeah, highly recommend it. It's like, we're kind of in this world right now where everything's supposed to be comfortable and soft and protected. And like, we're not going to learn to like live like that. You know, <laughs> um, we don't become like complex enough to solve problems if everything's just kind of padded everywhere. Um, it's, it's always interesting to kind of compare people who are raised by like American parents versus my parents that give us a lot of autonomy. And the, the amount of kind of like cushioning one gets in, in different cultures is very different growing up. And I grew up like, you know, I don't know, running around climbing trees and my parents came home later and they didn't really care what I did. I just kind of did my own thing. They probably cared, but you, you were doing your own thing. <laughs> we actually, um, but they weren't worried. Everyone who listened to <laughs> now, we, Helen and I share a, a common background. We, we both are, uh, were you born in Munich as well? Uh, no, I, I was living there though until I was three. Yeah, so I, me too. I lived there until I was four, uh, München, Munich. And yeah, for sure. I got scratched up by trees all the time. Like that was just a yeah. normal thing. And, yeah. then, and you take the yeah. bus to school, you do all the things. <laughs> or you walk and find, you know, like uh, beautiful obstacle courses on the way and come back all like dirty and filthy. And it's just, it's just part of how, you know, you learn. I, I totally, I totally hear that. Mm -hmm. You are, mentioned earlier that you are a optimist. How do you stay optimistic in a world that looks really confusing at the moment and that also like increasingly you're being told to be fearful and sit at home? Like, how do you actually stay optimistic? Mm -hmm. I think it's because it's the only path forward, which is like a pessimistic, optimistic kind of like, um, I originally like talking to this, uh, talking to our team about this. It's this like idea around like punk optimism. You know, it's like, uh, if we don't solve the climate crisis, we die. So therefore we will solve it. Um, which is like, you know, 
not real good logic, uh, but it's it's a way of like, you know, framing the mind, I think, in that way of like, this is how it has to go. Um, otherwise, we're screwed. Uh, and I think you can apply that to a lot of different situations of like, it'll be okay, because, you know, it has to be. Uh, and then you kind of just kind of can constantly be in be in that state of mind. Um, it's, I find far more productive to dream uh, than to kind of dwell in the past. Uh, if you have to spend time, there's like, I guess three different places you can have your mind space be is either in the past, in the present or the future. And dwelling in the past is, I find the least productive, um, unless, you know, you are seeking discomfort and want to like go and unpack your childhood trauma. Then I think it can be productive um, because it, you know, primes you for the future. Uh, but other than that, you know, live in the present and, and dream big, I think is kind of how I like to live. Right on. I, uh, I really like how you worded that. Uh, what comes to mind on my end here is um, Don Miguel Ruiz and The Mastery of Self, which is also mm. the, the same author who wrote the four, four now five agreements. Um, because in that book, Mastery of Self, he speaks about the Toltec wisdom. And he speaks about that there is a world that we dream into being, and then there is a world that has been dreamt for us. And so I think mm. a lot of the dystopian um, pathways on the way forward a lot of the destructive scenarios, they are the world that's been dreamt for us on media, on movies and whatever. And then us ourselves, like, you know, you personally becoming an agent of the dream that you can dream, that your heart is dreaming and embodying that, that's the path. Hmm. I love that. So last question for you in that context, then, you know, like if we let our hearts go even a little bit more into the future, you just, you know, mentioned the past, the present, the future, seven generations into the future, you know, we're like long ago ancestors at that point. What's your prayer, your wish, your dream for those seven generations in the future? What, what do you, you know, what do you want to broadcast into the world about that? It's a big question. Um... Yeah, I end up thinking about this a lot. Uh, I don't know if I have an answer. I think what's interesting is that I have very much been in this mindset of progress and growth and and building more and getting bigger and bigger. But then I'm realizing like that has to end. There's no bigger and bigger. And at some point it becomes regenerative and sustainable. And, and what does the world look like when we're kind of at peace, not progressing? Or what does progression look like, right? Like does humanity turn into a system where like, we try to seek more and more enlightenment. Like, is that the progress? Is, is it gonna go shifting from like building up, like buildings and infrastructure and making sure that food delivery is in like less than 15 minutes um, to all of that being automated and us like only being able to progress and work on ourselves. Um, that's the only thing I've kind of come up with, which is like, cause everything will get automated. Uh, and I personally get a lot of pleasure out of solving problems and, and progressing things and, and what happens when we've maximized on that? Uh, and, and that's a big uncertainty. And I'm glad that maybe I won't be around then because I, I think I would get very frustrated if I can't go solve a problem. I love problems. Well, I love solving problems more than I like having them. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> uh, I think that, that would be really hard for me. Uh, to, TBD, to, 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 be, yeah. to be defined and experienced. Um, yeah, it's, it's questionable if we will ever run out of, you know, things that don't need a, a next step, or as you said, solving problems. So, so maybe 
you could be still around without being majorly frustrated. But I, I really appreciate your answer, Helena, and your 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 way of thinking, seeing the world, and and questing to understand, but to also create uh, new pathways. You know, so solutions like solutions that come from a level of soul or a level of heart, and that actually, and I think this is fundamentally my personal belief is is recognizing that we as humans are part of the ecology and all the systems we want to build, all of the economies we want to build, if they are not value aligned with the, the, the cyclical nature of the ecology, they will in one way or another be destructive. And, and we've, we've gotten a big taste of that in our modern mm -hmm. society. So <laughs> thank you for walking the walk you're walking and for doing the work you're doing. I, I love it. And thank you for doing the work you're doing. This has been incredibly fun. <laughs> awesome. Where can people find more of you um, if they want to get in touch or you want to, you know, research? I'm going to, of course, link out, um, you know, to your last two projects as well. Um, just like a little call to action if you have one. Yeah, Twitter is probably the best. It's just my name, Helena Merck. Uh, and then on it, I link to a bunch of stuff. I like to tweet a lot about my my thoughts and, and my findings uh, and always happy to engage in in conversations. Right on. Thank you for being here. Thank you.